Hello and welcome to Das Nostalgia Podcast, episode 20. As usual, I'm your host, Anatoly, and today I have another wonderful guest with me. Sir, please introduce yourself. Uh, hi, everyone. I'm Steve Savage. Uh, I've uh, been a uh, computer gamer since I was a preteen with Space Invaders. Um, most people know me for my uh, work on the random generator site 7th Sanctum, and uh, I'm an IT project manager who's worked in IT for 20-something years. I also speak and write on Geeky Jobs. You can find out more at stephensavage.com. And uh, being a, much like Anatoly, an uh, enthusiast for historical games, I also help out a games museum in Silicon Valley. Nice. So when I heard about this podcast, you know me, Anatoly, I had to get on it. All right. Well, I'm glad to have you <laughs> well, before we get into our sort of the meat of the podcast, uh, I have to ask you: Do do you remember your sort of first encounter with an IBM PC or compatibles? Yeah, it was actually at college. I and we are talking the '80s, by the way. Mm -hmm. um, previously, my experience had been apples or teletypes, but the college I went to had a lot of IBM PCs. That's where I first encountered roguelike games. In fact. And I eventually picked one up for my schoolwork, and that's what introduced me to DOS gaming. And, of course, I overloaded it immediately. In fact, uh, several of the games I'll mention are ones that were on that very first PC. Nice, nice. All right, so I guess let's move on. So what are we going to talk about today, sir? What would you call it? Well, what I like to talk about is games in DOS that were ahead of their time. Because you and I know... Um, DOS, the DOS phase of games, there's so many unforgotten gems, so many things ahead of their time, and so many things that were, well, let's be honest, batshit crazy. Yes. That today would be completely comfortable as some kind of indie game. You and I, before the podcast started, were discussing things like that. And I want to discuss some games I think were ahead of their time, in a few cases, haven't, are things that we should follow up on today, concepts, ideas that people should pursue, because they haven't been done in a long time. Right. And um, if I may start. Sure. The one game I want to mention, and I'm going to spoil, I have to, <laughs> and this was one of my first games on DOS PC. In fact, this is probably one of the ones that sold me on the games available on a DOS PC, was Demon's Winner by SSI. Have you ever heard of it? I have not heard of it. Now, anyone that's talked to me is going to have to put up with me talking about this thing as being ahead of its time, but... It's a fantasy RPG that's a sequel to a game called Shard of Spring. Right. And the short form is that you're in a town, evil forces destroy it, and very quickly you discover um, a demon lord has stolen this magical shard that keeps the world's seasons in balance, and you have to go kick his ass. You know, the original starting concept is not original, but... Where the game exceeded was plot twists and mechanics that just blew me away. Uh, you're familiar with RPGs in the standard, um, you know, four warrior, cleric, wizard, thief pairing. Yes. And, you know, now it's turned into damage dealer, tank healer, so somewhere people right. forget the thief. I, I guess he snuck off or something. <laughs> uh, you know what thieves do. Demon's Winner actually had a bunch of classes, and there was very few standard ones. There was a thief character who was useless, kind of, so I guess it did sort of um, give us some idea of what would happen. But, for instance, there was no typical warrior. There was no typical wizard. And 
the cleric characters, you actually had to choose which pantheon of gods you worshipped and which god you worshipped. And oh, there were wow. actually two pantheons of gods. So any party could be really diverse. You might have a ranger instead of a barbarian, and they would be good at hunting so you didn't have to buy food. Uh, you might have, instead of a wizard casting, you know, standard wizard casting spells, you might have someone using elemental magic or, or illusions. There was visionary characters who had mind-reading abilities and detecting abilities and could keep you from getting ripped off or detect the properties of magic items. So your party composed of these you know, different characters with all these options, and any character could learn any skills on top of that, just got very diverse. It was really eye-opening to me as you know someone basically in their late teens, early 20s, seeing a game that threw out the standard four characters in favor of these really diverse classes and this open skill system because you know your party could just become this amazingly personalized thing that's quite impressive yeah it's the it's the kind of thing you would have expected in a much later role playing game um beyond the usual dungeons and dragons with the serial numbers filed off and it it was really ahead of I think it was really ahead of its time. You know, today with games it either goes down to the magic three or it's how many classes can we load into this thing. But I think Demon's Winner did it way ahead of many other games, especially with just all the different options. I mean there are like the the let, let's face it, RPGs were going really strong in the eighties, right? That was oh, like the hardcore genre for computer players because that was the platform i guess sort of more, the home pcs were were most suitable platform uh yeah. for for our rpgs and i'm not talking about specifically dos in this case obviously oh yeah uh, just generally home computers and uh, a lot of those like sort of 80s games uh get sort of revered for their uh you know difficulty and uh uh, you know, but by, by late '80s, those sort of things start s- slightly phasing out. Uh, mm-hmm. Like they, they're not as hardcore; they may be more user friendly and stuff. And I looked uh, Demon's Winter uh, briefly, and uh, it looks fairly accessible, at least from what I could tell. It has a sort of like a pool of radiance style combat, yeah, uh, and stuff. But how does it like? I, I haven't played it. Would you uh, like? What is your opinion on the whole sort of accessibility? Like, where does it fit in in this sort of? It was it was a bit overwhelming to be honest. Um, it was a game that was very friendly in kind of instructing you at the start, but then it drops you in and it gives you so many options you're on your own. But what changed it was you had so many options that once you got it, you could really start plotting your own course. Mm-hmm. Another example I, I want to give with this that ties in is it had procedural magic items. Now, today, you know, everything, procedural is one of the big words out there. But right. this had random magic items simply done by tying various properties and in-game spells into equipment. But first of all, um, you didn't know what this stuff do- did. That's why the visionary character was useful. You know, you could find a magic salve that actually just you know, cuts your character up because it triggers a blade spell. But event, not only did you have all these crazy procedural items, which uh, blew my mind at the time. It was fantastic because you just never knew what you'd dig up, find, buy, or kill yourself with. But also you would eventually find a craft shop and could build your own proce- build your own weapons from all the properties in the game. That was my first introduction to crafting. And since then, I have been a crafting maniac in games, um... 
you know, I love the Taylor series. I love anything with crafting. But, you know, this is the 80s. So you already have a game where there's non-standard classes, and then there's literally build-your-own-magic items. Right. And that was just amazing to me. That was the first time I'd experienced it. I don't know when the first build-your-own-magic item game was in RPGs. I don't know if that's the first. It's the first one I encountered, and that was hardcore crafting at the time. You know, find equipment, choose the things, add properties. It was amazing. And once you start getting further on, again, the game gives you these options, these openness to find new ways to win the game. Demon's Winner gave you options, and you could find your own way to win. And that was really impressive to me. You know, these days, something like Demon's Winner would be very comfortable as a kind of retro RPG game. Mm -hmm. It would sit very well among them, but it would look modern because of some of these mechanics. The graphics would be dated. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't look too great, but no, uh... it it did not it did not age well. Uh, but yeah, the mechanics were amazing for the time. I really think it's an example of how some '80s games could be very, and DOS games could be very ahead of the time. And I really advise anyone who can get a chance to get their hands on the manual or play it to try it. Now, one thing I'd like to mention, too, and I can't praise this game enough. Clearly, I imprinted. Um, <laughs> I'm going to spoil some of the plots, if you don't mind. Uh, go ahead. Okay. The the thing with Demon's Winter that kept blowing me away, and already I'm happy because I've got my party of personalized adventurers adventuring, and I'm finding crazy magic items. It had plot twists in the game. Um, the most memorable one in it is now the in this game unlike other games you know religion was actually part of some of the backdrop in the characters the clerics had erratic but powerful abilities at one point in the game the villain the main demon kills all the gods wow so you're playing and then you reach this plot point and every god except one which is part of a larger plot is dead every cleric loses their powers and unless they find this other surviving god, they have no clerical abilities. Wow. So, you know, you can talk Final Fantasy VII and Eris dying. That's got nothing to watch an entire pantheon of a planet kick. <laughs> yeah, wow. You have to imagine the first time I play it, I'm sitting there staring at the screen going, what? So the game would add these plot twists to ramp up the adventure. And this is, so suddenly it's not a standard dungeon crawler. It's this high fantasy drama. Right. Eventually the villain plunges the world into eternal winter, destroying most of the towns. There's very few refuges. So it keeps ramping up. You don't just feel like people kicking through random monsters anymore. As you play, the stakes start getting higher and higher all the time. And that was something that made it feel like a really epic adventure. And that was another thing that blew me away. You know, not the user standard, oh, look, we beat the bad guy, here's a screen of text. Um, all bets are off. And that left a, a huge effect on me of what a game could be because this was a game that had gut-punch plot impact. And RPGs, you know... For the 80s, not a lot of them had heavy emotional impact. There was a lot of influence of D&D semi-wargaming. Right. Demon's Winner packed a gut punch. And the final thing that I remember, and um, for those of you tired of hearing about Demon's Winter, I'm almost done. 
But if you corner me in person, you're going to have to deal with this again, was it had multiple endings. Um, there were two branching ending points, one of which had a ending, the same ending for all characters, but another had different endings depending on their classes. So you could actually win the game and get completely different endings depending on who was in your party. Hmm. So this whole package, I to this day, I still think it's unappreciated for doing so many things that today um, we either need to see more of it or they're very common. Demon's Winter packed them all into one game. I don't know if it influenced anybody as much as it obviously influenced me. <laughs> but I, I use it as a reminder of that games can games in the DOS era went a lot farther than we thought. Oh, yeah. I mean, I love Borderlands and procedural weapons, but my first experience was on a four-color adventure where I was watching a demon, you know, off a bunch of gods in the 80s. So my memories of procedural weapons go back to when we all had inexplicably bizarre hair. <laughs> Except for me, I just couldn't rock that. But a Demon's Winter, I think, is a grand example of why we should pay attention to DOS games, because so many incredible things got done, so many things we don't even see today, and so many things that were, if not foundational, ahead of their time. Oh yeah, it looks very interesting. Uh, I don't particularly. I'll I'll will be checking it out, but I don't know. I'm not like a, a, a not really a hardcore RPG fan. I don't really have much patience for, especially '80s RPGs. <laughs> they can get grindy. Yeah, but no, Demon's Winter. Um, it's a grand example of how we don't often appreciate the '80s, and mm -hmm. I recommend any DOS enthusiast to give it a go. But give it a few hours to get into it. Right. I will absolutely be checking it out. I don't know if I'll be finishing it, but I will be definitely checking it out. It sounds very intriguing. You know, another good one from SSI. Um, I think you mentioned this in one of your podcasts with Star Command. Yes, just last week. <laughs> well, that's one I, I kind of want to bring up, too, when you talk about, you know, being ahead of its time. Um, Star Command, um, though... The reviewers were not always kind to it, to be honest, but I loved it. Was It was a game with an entirely entire galaxy right. available for you. And you're like, as we're waiting for No Man's Sky, and I assure you, I have told my friends the weekend after No Man's Sky drops, you're not seeing me. <laughs> um, yeah, I, it's a chance to play through every book cover I ever read as a kid. But, or as a friend put it, No Man's Sky lets you explore uh, 18 quintillion Roger Dean album covers. <laughs> but, uh, Star Command's another example, because I was playing this, and it had an entire galaxy to it. Right. Well, my last week's episode was yeah. on space trading games. So, yeah. you know, we, we had procedural generated uh, yeah. galaxies since the early 80s, and yeah. pre-Elite even. Yeah, Elite, Captain Blood. Um, Star Command, I think, is a little remind you know, one of those reminders that, you know, the procedural galaxy thing is not new. We're just doing more with it. Right, and for the time that was my first encounter with um, these, you know, giant procedural settings, and it just blew me away. And on top of that, it had multiple classes, starship combat, an insane amount of weapons. Um, my favorite, I still remember to this day. I was playing the game with a friend. And there's this thing called the Panzerjäger, the armor hunter, and basically it was a portable mortar. So early in the game, our characters would only have one but it was enough. Eventually, everyone is carrying this thing, tearing through enemies, and it was a game that was just big. Mm -hmm. 
And, you know, with, like I said, plenty of weapons, all sorts of things to do in a whole galaxy. And, you know, as you mentioned with space trading games and stuff, this was very common for the time, too. Now, it's, you know, we talk procedural galaxies as if it's a big deal. And, yes, they're larger, bigger, there's more detail. Right. But that's been around for, you know, it's been around for 30 years. Yeah, because of the memory restrictions was, like, the only way you could do giant sprawling things is with procedural generation being being smart. Yeah. And it looks like Star Command is somewhat inspired by Starflight, which is probably like one of the seminal yeah. 80s games. And deserved, yes. I think there's some question about if it was a bit of a rip-off, to be honest, but... It, it has a lot of similarities. I mean... Uh, yeah, oh, Starflight is excellent. Uh, Star Command, like, sort of pushes the genre slightly to the sides. Like, it's... Uh, it's it, yeah, it's it's a sort of party-based sort of RPG thing. Yeah. Um, the space is 2D. Um, so sort of like, again, another game like ins- inspired by Starflight, Star Control, right? So uh, Star Control oh. 2 specifically. So it's kind of like that. All the space trading done like in a 2D space map. Uh, and it's sort of strategic. It's more strategic. The strategy element is, is heavy and the RPG party element is, is pretty heavy from what it looks like. Yeah, it's very heavy. In fact, the classes in it make a huge difference. Um, I think one of my favorite ones was uh, they had a Psyker class who didn't always seem useful. But uh, when I was playing it, what I had was my my uh, Psyker, my Psychic character, was the ship's gunner because he wasn't useful for anything else. <laughs> so we uh, we had a blast with that. My friends and I played through that a lot. But yes. Star Control, I think, is a or Star Command. Too many star things. Yes. There. And also, yeah, I'm I'm deeply disappointed. I'm not a true '80s kid if I didn't hit a character in Star Command named Jason. <laughs> if no one remembers that, that's because I'm old. But uh, Star Command and Starflight, all those others, again, another reminder of what could be done. And today, it feels like we're almost coming home to the giant procedural sprawling space game. And uh, the strangest thing for that is I feel like a kid again with some of these things. I feel like a teenager, you know, looking at things like Grav and No Man's Sky. It's every game I wanted to play in the 80s mm-hmm. that couldn't exist at the time. Right. But also a lot of them are like a realization of the dream. Oh, yeah. So I feel like there's this homecoming going on in space games right now. Yeah. I also hope it inspires more people to support space exploration. Yeah, we kind of, uh, nobody cares about space anymore, right? Like, uh, yeah. it was, it used to be such a big thing, it's like space this, space that, and now it's like nobody's like, who cares about space? I blame, I blame all the films using stargates that just took out the cool starship type <laughs> thing. It's like, yeah, I don't know, let's go explore a planet. Walk through this door. Um, it just kind of takes the whole thrill out of going to hyperspace and stuff. It's just, you know, it's like going down the hallway. But, uh, yeah, that's those are games I think were really ahead of their time, and you know, whereas in Demon's Winter was ahead of its time, and I almost feel there's still lessons to be learned. I think you see a lot of foundation of today's space games in the space games of the '80s DOS stuff. That's just very yeah. clear. I mean, now how many people do I know I can't pry out of Elite Dangerous? Yes, 
Well, yeah, so, that's the most obvious go-to, I guess. Uh, well, I I know at No Man's Sky, there's people I'm not going to see for three. Oh months. yeah, but people who are like, uh, well, only thing that's sort of regrettable to me is people who like are not familiar with games history now who like encounter me and like, oh, No Man's Sky, and they throw all those numbers at me, you know that 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 are very oh, yeah, sure, sure. yeah, that are heavily sort of pre- prevalent in the advertising, you know, like all those numbers. We're now all of a sudden care about size again size and numbers you know that was a big thing in the 80s it was a big thing in the 90s and it's it's coming back again uh like it's like everyone's compensating for something yeah but but it's like you know like like daggerfall i remember being very very prominently like advertising the size of its universe well hey you, you know what um that was actually another thought ahead of the time the elder scrolls series um eve i remember arena that was another ahead of its time. I mean, you know, we thought Ultima was big. Yeah. When I, Arena came out... I'm not the biggest fan of Arena, to be honest. <laughs> well, I'll I'll be blunt. I was, but then when I played Daggerfall, Daggerfall was like everything Arena could have been. Um, it, was, it was one of those sequels where I'm like, wow, there's a lot they probably could have put in the first game. But I think we have to give Arena credit in that it was... You know, for the time, it was pretty amazing. Arena is is pretty uh, pretty revolutionary. Uh, my my biggest issues would come with it that it's 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 kind of clunky and un, and unfriendly in 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 many what many is- ways. Where like, you know, you would expect a post Ultima Underworld game to sort of learn from that. Uh, you know, like I for one feel that Ultima Underworld is a lot friendlier than than Arena in in so a lot of people would agree with in you. in so many areas. Uh, but Arena is really cool and it has features like that nobody thought at the time. I mean, with all the, with all the like classes and like just like there's so many combinations. I'm not actually sure how useful a lot of that is in the game. Like is, did anybody ever like break down like how many just useless features there are in Arena that don't really affect gameplay? Cause I have a feeling that there's a lot. Same, same with Daggerfall to be honest. I, I wonder with Arena because like I um now remember I mentioned Demon's Winter turned me on to crafting. Right. Uh Elder Scrolls Arena had a spell making system. So I pretty much went crazy with that thing. To this day I remember things I created like Karma Vortex that sucked away all my enemies' luck. <laughs> and I'd just be experimenting with these crazy, you know, crazy spells. But um, I think for Arena, Arena was and again, I loved it. I played through it like three times. But Irina, in some ways, is like a proof of concept for what could come next. I remember it was originally a gladiatorial game, so right. it had been sort of remastered. I think it was um, it in Daggerfall, and Daggerfall, uh, it, it had its flaws. It was almost overwhelming. The random dungeons were bizarre. Yes, the leveling system wasn't clear. Both of those felt like um, Bethesda was groping towards something that they eventually found, but they were trying to do a lot. Yes, it, like when you look at Arena, it clearly has that feel of we have just been experimenting and building on something for several years, and we finally sort of we declared it done, and here here it is. It very much had that feel of just like things kind of just happening like I, I can i can now that i know the history of arena a little bit like i can pretty much imagine how that came to be so it's easier to accept it 
in that way. Daggerfall, I, I guess, less so. They just like, you know, they just wanted to make a really, really big game and, you know, it, it backfired in many ways. I mean, too ambitious, but it was still a bit more focused than in, in, in many ways than, than Arena was. I view Arena as like almost the prototype. And then Dagger Falls, the incredibly pimped out thing you make after the prototype. Yeah. And then they found their groove. I mean, when you look at the last few Elder Scrolls game, they were a polished affair. But those were games that I think, you know, Arena and Dagger Fall were the kind of games that someone had to make to see what we could do. And there were Dagger Fall fans that just lived inside that thing for years. Oh, yes. Um, it's, you know, it's one of those things again where, it was ahead of its time with its both with their flaws, but they were foundational. And a lot I think the Elder Scrolls series, <clears throat> a lot of games today would not exist without the inspiration of that series. In some ways I think it ended up being more influential than the Ultima series. Uh yeah, in terms of that sort of epic Its influences lasted. Yeah. Like epic RPG sort of stuck yeah. around. Every wants to do Skyrim, except they've taken a concept to the knee. <laughs> but, um, they, you know if a Skyrim comes in, there's an arrow to the knee joke eventually in there, dude. It's just gonna happen. But, uh, yeah, they, it was foundational, but I'll agree entirely on the flaws. I did not finish Daggerfall. There's points where I just, you know, lost interest because there were so many ways to go. Mm -hmm. And you could, you know, explore one dungeon and lose three hours of your life collecting herbs and pots. Yeah, it didn't, the, ra uh, the random dungeons really s certainly didn't help the... Uh, they didn't make any sense. <laughs> no, they didn't make any sense and like, it, uh, I don't know, three times out of ten they were impossible, so... Oh yeah, and you'd have the weird traps and water and... Yeah. But again, you know, we have to take it for what it is. It was the 80s, we still hadn't figured out how to do non-stupid non looking leg warmers. So, um, well, those were actually the, 90s. the those were the mid nineties, both of them. Actually, yeah, Dagger, that was a bit more the mid nineties. There, sorry, I'm stuck in the eighties. It's okay, still. I'm stuck in the nineties. It's fine. So are most of our movies. But yeah, another thing at the time, you know, we're talking about games ahead of their time. Um, we talked about stuff that's well known. Mm -hmm. um, but there's an obscure thing I want to call out. I got introduced to in the nineties uh, called Omega. I I love roguelikes. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I. You know, obviously I bought the copy of Adom. I adore Dungeon Mans, uh, which if anyone wants to get it, it's a semi-retro roguelike with world building. It's amazing. But Omega was this roguelike that, from what I can tell, isn't supported anymore. And it had an overworld, multiple classes. You could multi-class and join different guilds, different kinds of endings. Um, it was really amazing. Multiple gods, alignment issues. And it's one of those things that um, it did so much I wanted to see, but then it doesn't seem to be supported anymore. That's really sad. And if you look up Omega among roguelikes, it just seems that you know no one's you know making it or evolving it anymore. I've never heard of it. Granted, I'm not uh, particularly, um, I guess, familiar with with many uh, sort of roguelike offshoots. Because, <laughs> well, I'm familiar with the major ones, but this is the one that I. I have not heard of, but yeah, like it's, I looked it up and I was like, that's the thing that's been around since the eighties. Um, that's okay. So there's many other things. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, it, that, that's just sad too. Um, cause I love roguelikes and I'd love to see someone pick it up, you know, at least recompile it and drop it on steam for 99 cents or something to just, you know, 
bring these things back. It's weird. Like I'm, I, I, I'm looking at it now, and it lists the latest update. I'm not sure if it's from the official or some kind of unofficial thing, but it actually lists the latest update as of February twentieth, twenty ten, which is fairly recent for something that's been around since the late eighties. Yeah, you know, I don't know. Six, six years is a long oh, time. And, well, of course it is, but. Yeah. I mean that's that's nice, but you know I'm it's not like an ADOM level of support, so I just feel kind of sad like it's fallen away recently. Oh yeah, and it says that it's possibly influenced ADOM. Mm-hmm. Well, ADOM is its own thing. I think ADOM is more influenced other people, but uh, yeah, I would I could see some of the effect, but yeah, it's that was an amazing little one and. The 80s and some of the early 90s with DOS, you see a lot of roguelikes that were either made for those or converted over. Mm -hmm. I mean, who didn't have a copy of Rogue and Moria? You know, maybe played Ragnarok. NetHack. No, of course, NetHack. That's that's the one that I played. Oh, you and everyone else. (laughs) But the the fact it's still going, those are there's a whole history that can almost be you know done a book. That's a hint about how roguelikes influenced modern gaming, because now we're back to procedural generation up the wazoo. Yep, yep. And you know that if roguelikes hadn't been promoting that, it wouldn't have been happening. I mean, I remember a roguelike um, dungeon adventure back on DOS. I remember Beneath Apple Manor, which I think technically is the first roguelike. Hmm. You know, we're talking about, like, some of the things with, you know, we've talked a lot, a lot of RPGs. There's another game that I remember from DOS, way ahead of its time, totally unappreciated. Have you ever heard of Cyber Mage? Yes. Uh, I have actually just played a little bit of it last year. Um, and I know Ben Chandler on Twitter, I think, finished it also oh. last year. It's a tough... It gets tough. Um, oh, I, I love that. I mean, that's another game where I would love to see more like first-person superhero stuff because... Cyber Mage was one of those games, you know, I bought thinking it looks cool and it totally exceeded my expectations. Um, for anyone not familiar with it in our audience, basically, you're a guy who gets shot protecting someone from generic evil cult 12. And as people are wont to do, he saves your life by implanting a magical gem in your forehead <laughs> to fight evil. You know, the, the, I mean, there's pay it forward, but clearly this dude has problems. So anyway, you're armed with this magical gem in your forehead, and you break out of this lab you're in when it's attacked. And as you play, you gain new superpowers, some of which you actually get by being hit by other people's superpowers, which I thought was an interesting mechanic. But you also have guns. Mm-hmm. So you've got guns, you've got superpowers. You've got melee weapons. Yeah, melee weapons. Then you're fighting your way through all these, you know, 80s cyberpunk post-apocalyptic environments, and by that I mean characters with spikes and leather and everything mixture of brown and neon. Yeah, and rendered in 90s CGI. (laughs) It's not helping much. (laughs) But for the time, it was just really unbelievable. Uh, You would, you know, you go through these crazy environments, weird weapons, you could steal vehicles. Yes, that was very impressive for 1995. I want to point out that for people who don't know what we're talking about, that is the game... I don't know what it sounds like from the current description, but it's a first-person shooter. It's a first-person shooter with superpowers. Yeah. So you're going through this, you know, giant and admittedly linear adventure, 
just fighting crazy enemies and doing weird stuff, lightning fields, fireballs. But I still remember the vehicles because there's this one level um, in a city where you could not – I had to do this run through this place occupied by these vehicles. So I stole one and then kept luring them out one by one to blow them away. <laughs> and you could just do things like that. And it's the kind of game with its, you know, truly – it was truly a comic book game. I mean, it had that truly crazy, colorful feel. Yeah, it, it and, goes for it. Yeah, at the time, there was just nothing like it that really captured that. And all the different powers were just really awesome. I must have gone through it twice. And I still, just talking about it, I want to download it again. Maybe I'll give it another shot. I didn't really put that much time into it last year. Uh, it's, it's, it's a little bit on the clunky side as far as the 90s FPS are concerned. Uh, I've got, I've got nostalgia powering me here. So, uh, you know, take my attitude as you will. Well, it's, but... it's whatever, you know, like I judge games based on everything. Like I, I particularly, everybody who knows me knows that I like games with big ideas and I've kind of, uh, treasure ideas, I guess, m a little bit more than the implementation. But I'm still, you know, I'm familiar with games enough where I can point out that it's legitimate shortcomings and, uh, and Cyber Mage happens to be one of those. It can be sort of slightly difficult shooting, especially for a 90s shooter. Shooting doesn't really feel satisfying, uh, for I some reason. The character movement was a bit clunky. Yeah, too. the turning is weird, but it has multiple speeds and it's adjustable and it has, I think it's a really weird sort of thing. The UI that you choose your user interface is your hand, your mouse controlling your hand as you're going through menus. There are shortcuts as well, but you essentially pause the game. When you pick weapons or you select upgrades or whatever, you pause the game, like you press tab or something, I think, and uh, your hand just like picks items on screen. Uh, fairly unusual solution. And... Uh, uh, graphically, I will say it can be somewhat garish, but yes, it's like the, the 90s CGI, uh, like rendered cyberpunk in the comic book thing. So everything's like purple and yellow yeah. and blue yeah. and green. And, um, uh, and it's, you know, there's two modes. It supports the VGA and the East VGA mode for, for the time. Pretty demanding and actually really kind of, you know, good looking. And stuff. Yeah, I, I, I played it in that and yeah, it's, you know, it's another one where we can see its flaws, but I think it was not only ahead of its time. I don't, I haven't seen anything that quite matched the, the craziness powers aesthetic that it had. And it's something I'd love to see remade. Yeah, it's absolutely, I will say that's, that's a game that's, uh, definitely worth, uh, checking out. Uh, it's, it's kind of, uh, a little bit unfairly forgotten. It got if, lost if because only the for, only for curiosity's sake, to be honest. Yeah, it got you know so many games, so many FPSs, uh, sort of uh, came out in that space between Doom Two and Quake that that are f forgotten. Unless you were Duke Nukem 3D, you were kind of just off the uh, off the radar almost completely. So it, it and of course a lot of those were bad, but Cyber Mage happens to be one of those that people should probably look back on. But it, it's forgotten for that reason. It came out in 1995. Yeah, and there's so many games that get forgotten. That's why, you know, what you do is really important. Because, you know, we've got to kind of keep track of this stuff. This is our history. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, those who ignore history are destined to repeat it and sell it and notice that no one wants it. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, that was, uh, that was just something. That was, that game was pretty 90s, to be honest. Yes, very 90s. 
but I will have to definitely. It's it's one that you know, man, just talking about it makes me want to pick it up again. Oh yeah, I wonder. I mean, GOG has a few Origin EA titles, right? So they probably could acquire a license for it. So maybe, uh, maybe one day we'll see it. Well, maybe one day we'll see it available. You know, or you know, the, of course, it might be a parody. It may be something that comes off like Blood Dragon, but you know, who knows? We'll see what happens. But those, yeah, that, it's a game where um, I think for me, it taught me that FPSs could be more than dude with a gun. It taught me it could be dude with a gun and superpowers in an eye damaging future world, <laughs> and that you know, it basically kicked in the crazy. And that was really, really refreshing, you know, having something that just went nuts. Right. Well, uh, uh, I would like to talk about a game that's uh, not, not often talked about and um, that I feel deserves a second look or a first look, really. Uh, mm -hmm. It's um, uh, Richard and Allen's Escape from Hell. Uh, you told me about this. I looked it up, and it sounds totally unappreciated yes it is and I'm going to say I'm not going to talk about it much because I feel that a lot of the enjoyment of it comes from like realizing certain things about it and I really need to play it properly now that I'm older because uh, I, I feel that the game has a lot more to, to offer to me now than it there I've never as I mentioned before I'm not a big RPG person so if i can play an rpg it means it's it's very accessible and usually on a bit on the lighter side so that's a bit of a case here so it's a game that uses wasteland engine so it looks mm -hmm. like wasteland uh, uh but it's simplified and it's better looking because it's older 1990 it's this it's a comedy rpg so the story is you find your your richard uh, and mm -hmm. and you find uh uh like a spell uh, that that uh, transports people into hell uh, on your on your friend's Alan's uh, uh, door, and you you read it to, to your girlfriend, and it and it puts her in hell. After that, you get a phone call uh, that transports you into hell, and now you have to you know escape from hell. Um, it's 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 less RP. It's it's very much an RPG, but uh, it's much more of an adventure. Like you have a party, but you have no character generation. The Richard is preset for you. And, uh, you can talk to everyone, including enemies. Um, there's an animated portrait, sort of big wasteland style, but bigger. Really nice mm. graphics. And yeah, it, I, yeah. it's, it's very, very humorous. Um, uh, in, in, in all kinds of crazy ways. Like, uh, you, you can, you can, uh, like arm a garbage can lid and use it as your shield. Um, Run around stabbing everybody with a knife. That's basically the first level. And, um, uh, you know, you can kill friendly people. Uh, you can have your party can at one point have, uh, uh Hamlet or, 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 and or Stalin or Hitler. Uh, you know, and, but there's a lot more quirks. I don't want to spoil it. Like there's things that you touch. What, uh, what are those things called? Um, uh, the shit, uh, tridents. You, you like touch them, and they yep. and they change. Uh, they change some of the world's properties. Like a certain monster will not attack you, or it will change the time period of the level. Uh, and like things that weren't invented in the time period will stop working. Like if you had guns, and it if it if it turns the time to before Man. the guns were invented, you you'll lose all your guns. 
Uh, this sounds like something that would be an indie game. Absolutely, today. and it's it's really really funny. Um, it, it's it's very adventure, very open. It's easy, but it's not easy because uh, one thing about it, it's kind of hard to figure out what to do, and because it's fairly open, then I guess uh, yeah. But of course, for a seasoned RPG fan, that's like nothing. Uh, but it could be difficult to figure out what to do to progress to eventually get to, to you know, to Satan and save your girlfriend. But I would absolutely recommend that game, even if you're not going to finish it. Just fun running around and talking to everyone and stuff. It's, See, it's this is this is the kind of game that desperately needs to be revived. You know, I I have no problem as long you know if someone redoes a game or ports it as you know a little updated graphics as long as they keep everything. This is the kind of thing that clearly deserves more of an audience, and that's one of the things with the DOS age. No one appreciates. Okay, I, people do, but you know, again, I'm being old here. At some point, I'll probably complain about people's music. <laughs> uh, but uh, there's so many things out there that I'd love to see be brought back or found or wrapped up in a good emulator and promoted because there are history. Like this game you're talking about, I had never heard of it mm-hmm. until you mentioned this to me before the podcast. I looked it up. I'm like, I remember the cover and thought it was just some standard game. I remember seeing it in stores and walking by because of the cover. Clearly, I shouldn't. And this sounds like the kind of thing that today, a little remade, polished, updated graphics would be a huge hit. Yeah, I don't know about the huge hit, but it would definitely find the audience because the time time is more right for those kind of games. I'm, I'm defining huge hit <laughs> by an indie audience standard, not like you know everyone has it and talks about it till we're sick about hearing about it. Right. You know, though there is always that possibility, and these days there might be disturbing fanfic. <laughs> but um, yeah, it's the kind of thing that almost reminded me a bit of the non-standard things we see today, like Undertale, mm-hmm. which is just this. Yeah, I I played it and enjoyed it, but there are people fanatic about it, and the game is just like loaded with self-referential stuff. Right, but Undertale is like very genre subversive. This is not that, uh, but but it's 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 a push in that direction. Yeah, you can see that, and I think you know that that game makes me wonder. Did this influence anybody? Is this like a hidden treasure or a hidden story that we should really study for history? Maybe there's something there we don't know. Because I looked at this thing, and honestly, if you told me this came out today, I would believe it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I would believe that you can team up, you know, with you know Hamlet and Hitler to save your girlfriend from Satan. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's it's worth a second look. I don't know if it's ever influenced anybody. It seems like nobody have played it when it came out. Uh, because we sort of moved away. I think the time wasn't also wasn't right for it. You know, like the waste and like game at the time. I think RPG is the sort of uh, uh, we're moving into the 1990s RPGs with more of a sort of dungeon crawly uh, eye of the beholder, sort of the easier versions yeah. of the. Uh, of the sort of the uh, the gold box, the more the more hack and slashy elements come in, and, and even you know like the might and magic is changing from from that yeah. sort of hardcore thing into like a more user friendly thing, and Ultima is becoming big with its interactive worlds and and stories, and maybe uh, the art maybe on the box wasn't very representative of the game. The, the art is very memorable, but it's not. It doesn't really scream funny stuff. Uh, yeah, it sounds like it's freaking hilarious. So, so yeah, who knows why it wasn't popular? I mean, uh, but 
I will I will say that it's it's definitely worth checking out. Absolutely, I will recommend it to to everyone. In fact, hey, well, we've got it. I know that people follow your podcast, but you know, obviously, you know, they know this. What are good places to get some of these old games? You know, it always helps to remind them. What legally? Uh, yes, well, legally. I would not ask you to do anything wrong. <laughs> well, legally on Steam and GOG, uh, combined together have maybe, uh, I don't know, 300 games if we're lucky, probably less. I'm probably off by like a hundred. I forgot. I knew the exact number when they were reported recently, but I was so pissed off about them that I forgot. And, um, uh, illegally, just to use the search engine of your choice. Uh, also, I think there's some sites that uh, keep track of abandonware too. Of course. Well, that's a whole different topic. Uh, but yeah, well, there, there are plenty of the sites. And actually, the only one that I prefer to give a shout out to is the, the Internet Archive. Um, not only has like 3000 games, does games oh, yes. up, but it's also, they run in JavaScript in your browser. So. Oh, it's amazing. It's, it's, uh, I know some people complain about it or whatever. Considering what it's running on, it's super fast. Considering that I can run like Prince of Persia on my phone in a browser, like I will never complain about the speed. You know what I mean? Yeah, I know. It's kind of strange to think that I, I remember um, when I was doing some work at the Digital Games Museum and I was doing research for the museum um, and I found some stuff in the archive and I was able to run one of the games that I was archiving. And I'm like, this is, I am playing this in my browser. What the hell just happened? And I realized I was sitting there playing a game that would have taken a full computer just sitting there chugging away in a tiny corner of my memory and a tiny piece of my processor <laughs> and yet these games some of them really stand the test of time they might not look the greatest they might be a little unpolished but some of these are still so compelling and i think it's more than nostalgia oh yeah absolutely uh, well, you know, I always say i mean everybody says it. it's not like uh, i only say it, but you know when you work within the when you work with certain limitations and with a lot of limitations, especially technical ones, right? Like you sort of, limitations breed creativity, right? So like, like, so that's just that easy. So like a lot of those games, uh, are insanely creative. Plus, you know, the field was new. Everybody was excited. It was, it was cool to, it was almost everything in the early eighties broke new ground, right? Just like literally everything. So the, the genres weren't invented yet. We didn't call them things. And, you know, mm-hmm. most of those things were done by sort of hobbyists in a way. A lot of early 80s games are still indie games. Even, you know, Sierra was two people in a, in, in a house, you know. Oh, so, so, right. so in everybody else, I mean, Richard Garriott it was a rich kid, but, you know, he was one person in a, you know, in a house. So it's, it's, uh, it's sort of the garage industry boomed into big publishing industry, but they were all, you know, like, uh, so that's why to me, the move from those early games to indie games is sort of obvious. It's kind of the same thing, but, but also because the technology was new and exciting and, uh, people like pushing themselves and was interesting to them. There's very, like a variety of very, very creative things, uh, out there. Still some well remembered. Thankfully, some not so remembered, but remembered by some also great, but some are unfortunately uh, forgotten and some have completely disappeared. And in 20 years, nobody will know 
what those were. And it, it's, I know it's kind of sad. Well, I live in Silicon Valley, so I run into people that made parts of my childhood and just see, and my teenage years and seeing what happened is kind of, you know, amazing mm-hmm. and sometimes sad. And then you suddenly realize the person you're talking to at a Starbucks uh, created something in your teenage years. Right. It's incredible. Oh, yeah. And this is why stuff like what you do is important. Um, I would love to see you do do more podcasts on, like, you know, everyone's favorite forgotten thing or something. But I think we, you know, we have to look back on these and remember the stuff that was ahead of its time. Those, those games in the 80s and 90s, a lot of them were done with the spirit that the indie games are being done mm-hmm. today. Yes, absolutely. And that's one thing uh, I just love seeing captured right now. I love how Adam added its graphical wrapper, and it's still the solo effort, and it still has that unique feel of one guy's vision. Right. Um, there was an another game, um, you know, I was playing recently that is. Um, do you mind me mentioning a non-DOS game? Oh, go ahead. And this is one of those things where it just has that indie feel because it's called Space Food Truck. It's a optional multiplayer cart deck building computer game about running a food truck in space. That's the kind of crazy stuff we would have seen in the 80s and 90s. Yeah. You know, maybe not a deck builder, but I like that crazy level that's not just the latest Polish title. Mm-hmm. And that's, I think, we still have that indie spirit of these time because we're still experimenting. And going back to this stuff, you know, is inspiring. Like, I'm, I'm literally inspired right now to go start just gaming on something when we're done. <laughs> I've got editing to do. And I just want to go surf Steam and GOG for old titles right now, but I got a book sitting here I really have to go through. <laughs> yeah. I want to point out that we were like, uh, you know, like the podcast is going to be titled something like, uh, ahead of its time RPG games, but, 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 but like, and people will be like, what, only six? But it's like, oh yes, of, like some people will be. And rightfully so, because there's, there's, there's hundreds and hundreds of games. You know what you ought to do here? I'm just say is do some more things like this, then get all of us together for one big battle, one big discussion. Oh, those really don't get work. Get everyone who complains on, because those are just a few, but I think the real issue is, we could go on for hours about this. Yes, of. that's the thing. Like we, I think we've selected a few games that, if you, dear listener, right now listening and have not heard of those games, I think we encourage you to check out all the six games that we mentioned. Six games is not much, but you know, six games here, six games there, and uh, you know, you're you're going to be a bit more versed in your in your video game history. Also, it's going to help you explore companies and individuals you didn't know about. If you hear about one of these games, like, you know, I mentioned Demon's Winter and um, Star Command. Mm-hmm. Go look them up and see what else the companies put out, like SSI. See what the authors put out. And this will take you down a path to find more interesting games. Look at the individuals and look at the companies and look at their histories. Go to Wikipedia or something. You'll find even more titles. Like, you know, talking to you, I had never heard of this, you know, this go to hell game. Mm -hmm. And now I'm realizing these are two guys I need to investigate and find out more about. (laughs) Right. You know. So, hey, and anything else we wanted to bring up or any other games? Um, not today. (laughs) Well, listen, hey, it has been a pleasure and, um, I can't wait to share this with everyone, and I'm definitely going to let some of my friends into game history know more about this, because, 
I I told them who I'm going to speak to, and they're like, "Really?" And I, I'm like, "Yeah, I'll I'll hook you up." <laughs> believe me, they've all. I got one friend who's you know rewriting Robotron. Wow. So, yeah, there's a lot of people out there remember the stuff you do, man. That's why you're valuable. Oh, thank you. I I I'm always happy when people. Uh, sort of suggest themselves to you know like I I do podcasts with guests let me just take this moment to always remind everybody if you have a topic that you feel like you can like uh, talk about for for an hour or so or hour or two uh, that's that relates to DOS games please contact me on Twitter or Facebook or or wherever if you look for DOS nostalgia and uh, you'll find me. But please reach out and tell me that, that you, if you want to speak about it because this is your chance. People will listen. A lot of people are interested. Um, I'm sure some some people will learn something new. And this is nothing just two people talking. That's that's all it is. All I need is a topic and, and the willingness to, 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 to talk about it. And if you take my idea, eventually six dudes having an hour-long argument <laughs> over what the most unappreciated RPG is, and no one will know what each other's talking about. Well, thank you for being here today. Uh, just uh, as a sign-off, if people want to follow you and your work, where can you, where can they find you? Okay, if you want to find me, um, stevensavage.com is my website and that also links to my writing I write on creativity and geek careers and that links to Seventh Sanctum which um, is my site of random generators my love of the procedural and the random goes back enough I've had a website for like uh, 17 years with random generators so stevensavage.com my press site is informotron.com and Seventh Sanctum's my uh, random generator site and I'd love to hear from other enthusiasts because, like I said, I also do a little work now and then helping out with games history. Right. Uh-huh. If you want to get involved in helping with games history, uh, I can introduce you to a few you know, places you might want to donate to, get involved in, go help out. That's excellent. Yeah, let's get the little bit of ball rolling, right? Games history needs preservation, that's for sure. All right, man. Hey, you take care and you have a good day. And everyone, game on. (laughs) You too. And thanks to everybody for listening. And hopefully we'll see each other again on another episode of Das Nostalgia Podcast. Goodbye. Bye.